Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg. I'm Luke Hector and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. It's August 2015, and that means it's the two-year anniversary of the Broken Meeple blog and podcast. Therefore, for August, this is the first of a series of special episodes devoted to my top 75 games of all time. Not top 10, top 75. Hello all you listeners, and yes, you heard right. It's been two years since I started doing this blog and podcast. I have to admit, I do sort of forget the exact date, but we're talking around August. So August 2013 was when things really kicked off. I did my first review of Flashpoint Fire Rescue, and shortly after that, I started the Broken Meeple podcast. Granted, it was a bit of a work in progress, as you might tell from listening from the first five episodes, where the sound quality is a bit hit and miss, but As you can see with everything, it evolves over time as you get better at what you do, find new equipment, or just generally start correcting your mistakes. So what I thought I'd do this year was something a bit special. Last year I did my top 10 games of all time, and that was a cool top 10. But it's been a year since then, and I've got... As the blog has grown, I've managed to meet lots of new people and play a lot more new games. So I thought it was about time I jumped on the bandwagon that the Dice Tower love to do, which is the Top 100 Games. Slight problem, when I tried to do Top 100 Games, I realised that even though I have played more than 100 games, once I got to the bottom of the list, it was a bit like, not so much scraping the barrel, but kind of licking it clean. It was sort of like, oh, these games are good, but I might get tired of these soon, and they just didn't feel like they should belong on the top 100 list. So I shortened it a bit and tried to do 50, but then 50 was a bit too constrained. I mean, yeah, I can do 50 easily, but there were so many good games that I felt I was leaving off the list, it just seemed painful to cap it at 50. So, compromise, meet in the middle, and do tap 75. Most people never do 75 anyway, so maybe that can be my unique shtick, sticking with 75 rather than 100. I don't know. I bet there's people out there who have, but most people tend to stick to 10, 50, and 100. I'm going to do 75 just to be different. But first off, I've got a few shout-outs to make. First off, I just wanted to say thank you to several people. Firstly, uh, just to recap what I've been doing for the last month, apart from playing lots of games, I've also been attending ManaCon 2015. That was a convention held at the University of Leicester back in mid-July, and it was the first time I'd ever been. I was trying to keep up my promise of going to several conventions, and this one was the first one on my list, really, for something big and decent since the UK Games Expo. Now... The great thing with this was that it wasn't really about shopping or anything, even though there was a store and a tiny little second-hand sale there, which I didn't even get anything at, but it was definitely one for playing games. You met loads of people there, everybody just sat down, got games out, welcomed you in, so I got to try lots of new stuff. If you look at my blog, you can see my two-part report that I gave on what games I played there, who I met, that kind of thing. 
but I just wanted to give a shout out to two people in particular. Those two people would be Mark Hayton and, I hope I get this pronunciation right, Cal O'Dowd? Cal O'Dowd? It's spelt O-apostrophe-D-O-W-D. I believe it's a... I think it was a Welsh name, or it might be Irish, but I apologise in advance if I got that wrong. But these two people I met at the convention itself, and I got to play quite a few games with them. But they were wonderful people to play games with, they were a great laugh, great conversationists, and I got to play some games that I'd been had on my high list for ages, thanks to these guys. So, thank you, you both. It was a better convention as a result. Of course, there were other cool people that I met there, some that knew my podcast, some that didn't. I got to meet Stuart Garside from District 31, who's trying to kickstart his, well, sort of kickstart, get, self-publish his game Kablooey, which was an interesting little fun chaotic take that game with bombs. And of course, I finally got to meet properly, to actually chat to properly, uh, Paul Grogan from the Gaming Rules! Exclamation mark podcast. You had to go at me last time for not putting the exclamation mark in, so I thought I'd emphasise it a bit there. But, yeah, it was a great convention, and that I'm going to be there next year. I hope I'll probably go to MidCon as well in November, which is the pretty much the same thing, but done in Derby rather than Leicester. And, like I say, if these are the, if it, this is setting the bar pretty high for conventions, so I hope they carry on to be as good as this. Although I do have Essen in October, so uh, that's going to be an interesting one. Not that I'm jealous at all or anybody who goes to certain conventions that I can't go to, but I'm almost having it up to here with the amount of photos and posts I'm seeing with regards to, look at my Gen Con haul, look at everything I got from Gen Con, look at all these Gen Con goodies. Yeah, some of us couldn't go to Gen Con. <laughs> all those cool games that I wanted to set my hands on, and now I've got to wait until their official release date. Granted, I mean, uh, the only reason I'm going to Essen is because I'm able to go with Games Quest. It makes things a lot easier. But going all the way to America to go to a convention? Yeah, that's a little bit out of my price range and practicality sort of <laughs> limit at the moment. But hopefully one day I'll get to go there. So, you know, it's not uh, completely out of my reach, shall we say? But anyway, the other shout outs I wanted to give very quickly uh, firstly, to a man called Joel Peterson. The reason I'm giving a shout out to you is because this morning, actually, before I set about recording this podcast, I woke up to a message in my inbox on the Broken Meeple, essentially giving me some very good and very much needed encouragement for supporting my podcast. I won't read the message out word for word because obviously I need the guy's permission to do that, but essentially it went along the lines of really enjoy the podcast, hope you keep doing them. Uh, I imagine it's a tough job doing a one-man operation, so here's my appreciation for it. I was grateful to read that this morning because, obviously, yes, it is a tough job doing this as a one-man operation, and I know other people who also do theirs as one-man operations, so I know how much of a time sink it is. But this morning, it was just a really good thing to read, actually, so I just wanted to give you a quick shout-out there saying thanks for that because I do appreciate any feedback I can get from listeners whether good or constructively bad you know so it is worth dropping me a mail saying you know what you think what you think could be improved what you'd like to see and even if you've got questions because I did say in one podcast that I wouldn't mind doing a kind of mailbag question and answer thing but obviously I need questions in order to answer them so that's where I gotta leave it down to you guys and then the final shout out I want to give is to a kickstarter that I've backed recently for Dice Portsmouth 
Dice Portsmouth is a project run by Ricky Parsons and Lee Perslow. These two guys I met at the Portsmouth on board uh, meetup recently, and essentially what they are doing is that they are hoping to start a board gaming cafe in the South Sea Portsmouth area. Now, this is obviously something I am very keen to see happen because board gaming cafes are mostly something that's kind of restricted to the US at the moment. And we have one or two dotted around, like Firstly Meeples in Oxford and another one in London, I forget its name, sorry. But, you know, they're few and far between. And, you know, different ones for different different ones have different ways of going about their business but to have one in Portsmouth would be fantastic and especially now that they've teamed up with my associate games quest to get this thing up and running it's high hopes that this is actually going to go forward and will definitely be a thing by the end of the year and I don't mind splashing out money on this because in the end another place to meet up and play games whilst enjoying a nice you know cup of tea pie cake whatever they decide to serve as food and play different games, I'm going to love it. And I've already been playing some games with them and attending some of their uh, pop-up events. Um, I've even helped them out with a news interview they did recently for the Portsmouth newspaper. Literally, I think it's just called The News or something, or The Portsmouth News. And that's going to be published uh, by sometime at the end of this week, weekend, I believe. So keep a lookout for that in mentions of Dice Portsmouth, but I'm going to feature in there as well. They're also going to do a pop-up event in Gumwharf on the, I think, definitely the 15th of August, which is the Saturday. But they're hoping to get the location for the 16th as well. And basically, they've got full use of a cafe in Gumwharf where they're going to do another one of these pop-up events where they're saying, this is who we are, this is what we do, come in, play some games, have a drink, and chat. And these work really well to get the, the name out because in the end, you are essentially... as <laughs> In the way that you're advertising, you're doing what it is you're setting out to do anyway. This whole, here's my here's my cafe, come have a drink and play games. So you're, you're not really advertising, you're just saying, this is what we're going to do, you know, take it or leave it. And I, like I say, I think I'm spilling too much here. So rather than rabbit on about it myself, I'm just going to let Lee discuss this for me. So this is a little two-minute almost two-minute advert, shall we say, is my commercial section about Dice Portsmouth and what they set out to do. So take it away, Lee. Hi, my name's Lee, and I'm part of the team behind Dice Portsmouth. Dice is a new board game cafe coming to South Sea really soon. We've been gaming for a long time in Portsmouth and we feel we can offer you the venue to come and participate. When we open we'll have a board game library of over 500 individual titles for you, your friends, your families and your partners to come and try. We're also very excited about hosting special evenings, tournaments and themed events. To make Dice Portsmouth a fantastic success we are looking for your support. Currently, we are running a Kickstarter campaign to ensure our premises are as big as they possibly can be and our board game library is as large as we can make it. To find out more about our cafe, you can find us on Kickstarter by searching Dice Cafe Portsmouth. You can find us on Facebook at forward slash Dice Portsmouth. And you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at at Dice Portsmouth. Thank you for showing your support for the cafe and we look forward to welcoming you through the doors when we open.
Cheers, Lee. Well, that's all the details on Dice Portsmouth that you need to hear, really, for now. Go check out their Kickstarter page. I've already pledged for a table, so hopefully the uh, Sentinels table will turn up there when the place is open, so I can go there and play Sentinels of the Multiverse as much as I like. But that's enough about the shout-outs. Let's get on with what you're really here to listen to, I bet, which is the start of my Top 75. Now, the Top 75 games I am going to do in three episodes, and I'm going to split them into bouts of 25. There won't be any first impressions or news or discussion topics for these three episodes because... For starters, there's only so much going on at the moment until all the Gen Con stuff really gets released. And secondly, in order to do three episodes in a month, I am kind of having to uh, condense my time a little bit and really organize myself in order to get three episodes out discussing my Top 75. So it's going to be just like every other Top 75. It's These are games that I think are brilliant, most of which are in my collection, but not all of them. You know, There are reasons why some of them wouldn't be in the collection and I'd still really enjoy them. You know, Whether somebody else owns it or whether it's too expensive to buy, but I just think it's really good, that kind of thing. The only caveats I am going to make, though, is that the cutoff date for this list was around the third week of July. So there are some games that I have played since then, that uh, several times, that might have made the list, but I can't because I did set a cutoff for a reason. So, spoiler alert, you will not see the Game of Thrones LCG on there, which I've been enjoying a bit lately. Well, for two reasons, really. One, it was after the cutoff date, and two, as much as I've enjoyed being taught the first edition, I'm really banking on the second edition wowing me, so I'll give a full review of the second edition after the corset comes out, and that will feature later. The other caveat is that I have specifically included, um, sorry, excluded certain games off the list, and they are ones that I have only played once. There are some games that I did enjoy, but just haven't had the time to get them to the table to be played more often, or they've only been played once and I haven't bought them yet, that kind of thing. Those sort of games will not make this list, because, I'm sorry, once is not long enough to tell whether the game deserves to have a spot in a top 75 list. So all the games in this list I have played several times, and can give a decent opinion as to why they're in the list. Obviously, it will be fun to see next year if I do another Top 75, which I hope to do, where games start shifting on the list or where the new ones come in, but that's for next year. For now, let's try and get this one out of the way because this is already a bit of a, shall we say, a bit of a mission to try and do this slot. But it was good fun making the list. Uh, it's certainly hard work. I will tell you this now. It is not easy making the Top 75, or well, top, top 10 lists are hard enough. Trying to do... 75 to 100 is ridiculous because you are basically just sitting there with a ton of cards or bits of paper with all the games that you could potentially put on there and you are spending ages going do I like that one better or that one better right that one and putting them into lots of little piles then combining the lot together then reading through the list again and going that looks a bit out of place I'll shift that up you know all this fine tweaking before eventually you get a list that you're happy with now obviously bear in mind that this is just my opinion so if there are games on this list that you don't like that's fine I'd like to see your list and find out more about that 
But also bear in mind that for a lot of games, particularly on the higher end of the list, this list could chop and change you know, at a moment's notice. So just because something is higher than another game doesn't mean that I think the other game is like infinitely better than that one. It's just that at that present time, this was a game I preferred. Now, you know, especially when I get to the top 20, you know, all 20 of those games uh, for me are going to be excellent games. Just because one happens to be at 15 and the other one happens to be at 10 doesn't mean that I'm not particularly happy with the 15 one. They're all good games. So, I mean, all 75 of these are good games in my opinion, but obviously it's going to be even more apparent when you start getting to the top 25 and suddenly it's like, oh God, this is the creme of the creme. How do I separate these out? How do I rank these? Anyway, that's enough blabbing for me. Let's get on with it, shall we? The top 75 games of all time. Number 75, this is a gateway fantasy game by Days of Wonder, which is still popular to this day. It's still ranked 108, I believe, 108, yes, 108 on BoardGameGeek. This involves you choosing from different races with different abilities, and these races and abilities can, can be combined in exponential amounts of different ways, especially once you've got all the expansions. I'm talking, of course, about Small World. Small World has you basically going at each other's throats on a regular basis with all these different races and uh, with abilities, and you have this map which scales with the number of players, and in a very deterministic, uh, almost you know, deterministic combat style with a little bit of dice throwing, you spread out across the map using your abilities to the best way of getting points. Once you get bored with that race, you can then put it into decline and then choose another race with another special ability and go at it with this. Relatively simple, relatively quick game. Scales nicely with two to five players without any trouble. It's just a nice little simple game and it it just creeps onto this list at number 75 because I like variable player powers and abilities and well small world kind of has them in spades it doesn't hit the table as much as I would like there are some better ones out there but small world is still a solid game and worth making this list Number 74 from Alayer Games is what I like to call the baby brother of Puerto Rico, and of course I mean San Juan. San Juan is ranked 160 on BoardGameGeek, and like I said, the baby version of Puerto Rico, in that it uses the same mechanic where you have several roles that you can choose that give you a special power for the turn, but also allow other players to also take the action, although you get a slight bonus for choosing it. Now, in Puerto Rico, you had to mess around with trading goods and all the like people at your disposal and putting your buildings on this little map and stuff and then shipping them off. It was a bit more complex. San Juan boils it down to essentially a deck of cards where the cards really... And this is what I find really cool about it. The cards are everything in this game. They are the resources. They are the buildings. They are the producing like buildings like tobacco and... Uh, what do you get? Tobacco, coffee, and sugar, that kind of thing. They basically are everything. They're your money, they're your currency, they're your buildings and everything. And this just plays out similar to Puerto Rico. It gives me the same feel, but in a much quicker time. I mean, you can wrap this up in 45 minutes without any trouble, and with three players, it goes pretty quickly. 
So San Juan just makes my list because I enjoy the fact that the cards have multiple uses. You know, you've got to make harsh decisions about, ooh, well, I want to build this, but then in order to afford it, I have to get rid of these cards, but I wanted to build this later, so I've got to sacrifice that in order to build this. Is it worth it? You know, stuff like that. And it's just a really neat design, really cool little game, San Juan. Number 73 is ranked 1,324 on BoardGameGeek. That is a low value for something that should be on this list. But I still get a kick out of playing this game ever since I learned about it, and it still remains in my collection to this day. The English translation is Cockroach Poker. This is basically a really simple bluffing just on them. And you will pass them to, at one at a time, you will pass one to a player, and you will say, This is a fly. This is a uh, stink bug, that kind of thing. And then the other player has the choice. Either trust you and say, yes, you are right, flip it over and hope that he was correct on that assumption, tell you that you are a liar, flip it over and hope that you were lying, or look at the card and then pass it on to someone else and make their own claim about what the card is. And they can lie through their teeth, they can tell the truth, or whatever. The idea is that you're trying to win the challenges. So when you effectively say I don't think you're telling the truth you want to be correct in that so call out people's bluffs the cool thing with this is that there is no winner you don't win this game nobody wins this game you are trying to avoid being the loser and to lose you have to have collected four of a particular type of vermin in front of you because if you ever get the challenge wrong you end up with the card so it just it's really cool that there's no winner so there's no like ultra competitiveness you're just trying not to lose and it's really funny sometimes the way people start getting into these like bluffing wars between each other trying to out outguess one another's like card and it's even more funny when one person gets the free cards of a particular type in front of them because then they just basically have a red shirt and a giant target symbol painted on their face where everybody else starts gunning for them and so like oh he's got three rats in front of him right here's a rat here's a rat here's a rat even though there's only about nine in the deck there's about 15 rats going across the place so who do you trust it's a really cool little filler game barely costs like it's less than 10 quid i believe it's a really cheap game i recommend you pick it up when you get a chance if you like bluffing games because this will suit you down to the ground. Next up is a little card game by Plaid Hat Games called Summoner Wars, my number 72. Summoner Wars is this neat little tactical card game where it almost plays out like advanced, I don't know, I suppose a semi-advanced chess. You are trying to kill your opponent somewhere whilst protecting your own. And you have a board where these wolves are summoned to the field, as well as different warriors and elites and, of course, your main summoner. The cool thing with this game, though, is that it plays out very tactically. You know, you've got to think about what your guys are doing, what they're going to do whilst keeping your guy alive, whilst going for his. Very much a back-and-forth dual game. But there are so many different factions. I mean, the Summoner Wars Master Set that I started off with had eight different factions in there. Plenty of variety, and they all play very differently from each other. We've now just recently had the Summoner Wars Alliance Set, which decided, right, remember all these extra races we brought out and all the Master stuff? Well, here's eight more decks where we have two factions combined per deck. So the combinations are just ridiculous now. And so 
for a fairly cheap price, you can pick up a game that's got legs. Its only flaw is that it is only really a two-player game. I mean, yeah, you can team up and do the four-player variant, but that just makes the game a bit too long and is a little bit hard to get to the table, really. This is really best as a two-player quick 30-minute game. My only problem is that two-player games are hard for me to get to the table, which is why this doesn't really go higher on the list, but Summon the Wars is still a very enjoyable game, and if you've got a chance to pick up one of the master sets for cheap, then I recommend doing so, but even if you just want to try the game out, you can just pick out the little decks that barely cost a few quid each or something, and just test the game out between the two of you. So Summon the Wars, 72. Number 71, now this is a very cutthroat game. I used to play the 1982 version of this uh, religiously when I was a kid, and so when there was a 30th anniversary reprint of it, I grabbed it as soon as I can, and I was glad to find that it's still as good as ever, even though I had to get a couple of mini expansions for it just to bring it up to the same level as the 80s version. Ranked 174 on BoardGameGeek, this is Survive, Escape from Atlantis. I believe it's just called Survive now. I don't think it has the... Oh, no, it does have Escape from Atlantis in the title. That's all good. But this is a cutthroat game. Whoa. I mean, be careful when you're playing this with your kids or with people who get angry easily because the premise of the game is that you are trying to evacuate your sailors off an island which is disintegrating whilst basically trying to avoid getting eaten by all the sharks, squids, and octopuses and God knows what else that populate the seas. Obviously, while you're trying to escape, the opponents get to move the creatures and potentially eat your dudes. So there is a lot of take that in this game. And if you're somebody who gets angry or a kid who cries a lot, whoa, you're going to have interesting times with this game. But if you just don't take it too seriously and just enjoy it for what it is, just basically carnage all over the place, then this is a very solid game to play. It's also simple to learn, so it's a good gateway game for people. And like I say, if you just with a couple of drinks even if you just want to sit around and munch 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 on lots of little sailors with sea creatures then this is the game for you just maybe when i say a couple of drinks be a little bit careful because like i say this one can frustrate a lot of people 71 survive Number 70 is another gateway cooperative game this time. You're probably going to find there's a few cooperative games on this list, because after all, it is my favourite genre. This, I believe, is now the lowest cooperative game on this list. Yes, the others weren't co-ops, but this is still a really good gateway game to teach new people. It worked on my ex-girlfriend, it worked on friends of mine. It's a really solid little title that you can pick up for dirt cheap. Ranked 152, this is Matt Leacock's Forbidden Desert. Now, I don't have Forbidden Island on this list because I've not tried that one, but I reckon that would be a little bit too simplistic for me as to what I want. Forbidden Desert, though, is a nice little simple game where you've crash land in the desert and you're trying to rebuild your ship by finding all the parts and then fly away to safety. Of course, while you're trying to do this, the sandstorms are coming in trying to bury you guys alive, and you've also got the problem that water is limited and you have to try and stay alive because if one person dies, everybody dies. So suddenly there's no like, oh, well, we don't care about him we can just let him die and we'll be fine nope everybody must live and that gives this game quite an interesting level of difficulty especially with certain combinations of characters but it's a really simple game still good fun and one of my top choices for when i want to teach people the hobby it just works really well so forbidden desert number 70 
Number 69. Now, I bet none of you expected to see this on the list. It's a cooperative game, but the first time people heard me talk about this, I said it was overrated. And even though I think it's still a bit overrated, I mean, it is ranked 12 on Board Game Geek, it's still a, re a cool game. I had to give it a few more tries to really appreciate it for what it was, and yes, I was glad to say that this was a game that I could have in my collection and still enjoy, even though it's difficult to bring out due to its, uh, shall we say, uh, high uh, complexity and slightly long setup time. But that's Robinson Crusoe by Ignacy Trevijek. And yeah, like I said, I did think this was overrated a bit. You know, I think rank 12 is a bit high. But this is still a really enjoyable Euro-style co-op game where you have several different scenarios like trying to build a signal fire, uh, chase away cannibals, find a lost relic icon, that kind of thing. And it's a tough game. Wow. I mean, this will teach you everything you need to know about island survival just in the way that it beats you down senseless with how difficult it is. I don't even know if I've won a game of it yet. I mean, granted, I've only played it a few times, but... I have not won it yet, and that's, I don't mind. It's a tough game, and it should be. But, woo, I mean, if an animal doesn't kill you, then event cards will, or the weather will. That weather die is such a pain when that comes into full force. You know, I learned the hard way that I really should not ignore having a shelter, because I've died far too much to the weather now, so the, weather, the shelter is one of my number one priorities now. But this is a cool Euro co-op game, it's not the cheapest in the world, and it will take a bit of time to grasp all the rules and set it up and that, but it's worth it, especially if you want to play it solo, or even just with two, maybe three players. I probably wouldn't recommend it with four, but with three players, it's quite a good number for it. So, Robinson Crusoe, Adventures on the Cursed Island, number 69. Number 68 is a drafting game that will, it came after Seven Wonders. This is Among the Stars. Among the Stars was a science fiction drafting game done by Artipia Games, and or Stronghold Games, many of which uh, continent you live in. And it's similar to Seven Wonders in that you are drafting cards, but instead of building a civilization, you are building a space station. Because of that, you have to be considerate as to where you put the various parts of the station, because now you have a spatial element to worry about as to how you lay it out. Laying it out in certain ways will get you more points. It's a cool game, but it really does require the Ambassador's expansion to shine, because that gives you these different lead these sort of Ambassador aliens that you can take as part of your move, which give you special abilities or power-ups as well. So, I reckon... If I didn't have that expansion, I don't think Among the Stars would make the list. But with the expansion, it bumps it up to a really good level. It can be a little bit fiddly to get set up because you have to organize the location deck in advance in a particular way, depending on the number of players. But once it gets going, this is a good gamer version of Seven Wonders that if you wanted a bit more of a theme to it with the whole building the space station in a particular way, then this is one you should definitely check out. 68 Among the Stars.
Number 67 is a Gateway Euro game, which probably was one of the first few games that I actually had in my collection. I remember buying this one quite early, and it's still in there now. This is Kingsburg. Kingsburg ranked 199 on Board Game Geek. The idea of this game is that you are trying to build a sort of little kingdom, a little province of various buildings. But the way that you get the resources and the abilities to buy and build them is by rolling some dice and then using those dice to pay to get the resources of particular advisors and people. But what each advisor has a number from 1 to 18 and you have to use your dice in whatever combination you feel like to choose which advisors you want in order to help build your province so you might need to use the assassin for example who may be a 13 so therefore I need to have enough dice to make 13 and then I can use those dice on him. There are plus two tokens that you can use to mitigate this and obviously there is the problem that other players, once they take your spot, you can't have it, so you have to bear in mind that factor. And then at the end of each year, there is also a little war that you have to fight, which is a little bit abstracted. It's essentially flipping over a card and seeing if you've got the combat value to beat it. If not, then you lose some points or resources. It's a cool little game. It was the first game that introduced me to this whole you can roll dice and use them to do actions. I mean, this came before things, for me, this came before things like Castles of Burgundy and Alien Frontiers, that kind of thing. So, but it's a very nice, easy game. And what bumped it onto the list was the expansion to Forge a Realm. To Forge a Realm really kicks this to a new level with the variable boards, the extended boards, the event cards, the character powers that you can have at the start of the game. That expansion bumped it onto this list because I don't think it would have without it. This is an expansion which I believe you should buy as you buy the game. And I do not say that often about many games. So if you like the idea of rolling dice and using them to perform actions and stuff like that, then I recommend giving Kingsburg a try. It's an easy game to play, easy to pick up for non-gamers. Give it a try. Kingsburg! Number 66 is a two-player abstract game, which I don't have in the collection anymore because I know people who already have this, and like I said, two-player games are hard to get to the table, especially as I live alone and I'm single, but this is Hive. Hive is was essentially my go-to game for a chess replacement. This is a really cool little abstract game where you have uh, these chunky, really nice-looking tiles with various insects on them. The object of the game is to surround your opponent's B tile, and you have one yourself as well. Now, the way you surround the opponent's B is that you use your tiles with these different insects on because they move in particular ways. You have to connect the tiles up so that they're you know, joined up. You can't have ones dotted around all over the place. And you'll have things like the ant, who basically can move around the entire load of blocks. You'll have the spider who moves several spots. You'll have the grasshopper who can jump over tiles. You'll have the uh, stag beetle that basically hops on top of a tile and nullifies it. You know, And then with the expansion, you can get like the mosquito that can copy things. It's really cool how these things move and interact, but it's just such a simple two-player abstract game that requires a reasonable amount of tactics and strategy for what it is. And you can pick up the pocket version if you want something to travel with. I highly recommend this as a travel game for couples. Or you can grab the Hive Carbon, which has these really large, chunky black and white tiles, and they do look gorgeous despite having no color on them. So Hive is possibly my go-to replacement for chess 
that I would say number 66. Number 65 is an interesting little game ranked 436 on Board Game Geek and it's hard to call this a game really, it's more like an activity. It can be played with anything between 2 to 12 players, it's effectively a party game and that is Concept. Concept was, I never knew what to make of this, It I just got shown it on the table, it was just a white box with a giant question mark on it, and at first I'm thinking, okay, what is this? And then my friend brings out the board with all the symbols on it, and it's like, oh my god, the iconography is off the scale. But the cool thing with this is that you it's the traditional style party game of, I've got a clue to, uh, and you've got to guess what the clue is. But rather than speak or use sounds or anything, you have to place these little uh, question marks and cubes on this board that has lots of different icons. And the icons can be different colors, different shapes, different categories like, you know, uh, music or a food or a male person or a sport, that kind of thing. And you have to use these question marks in various ways to try and get your mates to guess the clue. Now, for example, you might have uh, milk as a nice easy one. And you would put your question mark on a space that represents uh, food and drink. You might put an, another one on a space that's liquid. And then you might put another question mark with some cubes. The idea of the cubes being that they emphasize the point. And you might put that on the color white. So you've got a liquid that's drink and white. Milk. You know, it all links to that. And, I mean, that was an easy example. The clues in this can get stupidly hard, especially when you go onto the hard setting and try to do the sayings and catchphrases. I don't even know how it's possible to do those, because to symbolize a catchphrase on that board, how is that done? I have got to beat the people who can do that, because I certainly can't. But if you stick to like the medium setting, you can get some fairly tough but not stupidly tough clues. And it is really funny to watch the person literally blow a gasket inside his head as he's trying to like point at various spots. You know, he can't speak, but in his head he's like, I mean this, this, look, how could you that know? You know, it's, it's very much the same sort of reaction you get from most of these games where your partner can't guess the clue that you think is blatantly obvious. But this is just a unique way of doing it and very clever. Not one to be played as a game. I usually don't even play it with any point scoring. I just say, look, we're going to play this for a bit. It's good fun. It'll test your brain cells. And some people, like uh, Suzanne from the Dice Tower Network, have occasionally done like Twitter announcements where they've basically taken a photograph of the board in a particular way and got people on Twitter to guess the clue. That's a really cool way of bringing the community together. I might have to try some of that at some point. But anyway, 65 concept. Number 64 is a storytelling game and probably my favorite storytelling game to date. It's a fantasy game where it almost feels like you're playing an extended version of one of those adventure books that you had as a kid where you read the paragraph and then it said, do you wish to turn left or right? Go to page 65. You find a monster. It kills you. You're dead. Start again. Uh, It happened to me on a regular basis. But this is kind of like that times 10. And that is Tales of Arabian Nights. You have a giant book full of encounters that you will read to other players as they go around the board. Now, the cool thing with this is, much like those old books, the player then finds that he meets, say, 
an, an old beggar. And he has a matrix of choices that he can decide to do with this old beggar. He can speak to him, he can, uh, you know, care for him, he can kick him, he can punch him, you know, he can rob him, he can ignore him, you know, that sort of thing. And depending on what he chooses, you read a paragraph out of the book to say what happens in the encounter. So it is a storytelling experience as more of a game, really. It's worth saying that I tend to cap this at 90 minutes because it can drag on a little bit, um, because in the end, the point scoring is fairly rudimentary in this. You know, okay, you won the game, big deal, because there is a fair amount of luck involved. You mainly play this game for the experience, and it's just a really funny experience as some people end up in the most ludicrous of situations as you go through this encounter book. Not one that I would play on a massively regular basis, but I certainly like to bring this out every now and again when people just literally want a bit of a laugh with a couple of drinks. So, Tales of the Arabian Nights. Number 63 is a game, a Euro game that most people probably haven't heard of by Pegasus Spiel. This is called Ferenzi. Ferenzi, 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 I'm not sure. F-I-R-E-N-Z-E is the spelling for it. Uh, ranked at 516 on Board Game Geek. This is a cool little Euro game where you are building towers out of little blocks. And all the blocks are these different colours and they're all wooden pieces which is really cool. Now, building certain towers of different colours will get you more points than others, depending on how rare the blocks are. And you also can get points for completing certain sections. You also may lose points if you, uh, or lose building materials if you try to build too much at once, because there's only so much uh, resources and time to go around. But you draw these pieces out of a bag, and you will buy cards that allow you to do various things during the game. But it works very much like Small World, where if you want to buy a card that's further down the line, you have to place a building block on the cards before it. Much exactly the same way as the Small World Gold thing works with choosing the races. But this was an unexpected game for me. This was a surprise for me when I played it, because I didn't expect much of it. But it turned out to actually be quite a fun little Euro game where you've got to really balance out what you know what cards you do, what bricks you're going to use, because in the end, if you don't have the bricks, then you obviously can't build the towers. But if you have multiple towers working on it once, you might, if you don't increase the towers, they get torn down as abandoned construction. So suddenly it's like, that's a bit of a problem that you have to micromanage. And also you've got to pay attention to what other players are doing because if you were trying to build and claim this commission on a green tower, for example, and you notice that your buddy across the thing is also collecting green bricks, then it's a race to see who gets there first. Cool little Euro game, Forenzi. Number 62 is a party game, a very good party game which I remember playing a lot with a group of friends of mine where we go on holiday each year, we rent out a cottage and there's about 10 to 12 of us at a time. We tended to play a lot of party games while we were out there and this was one of the more popular ones with them and that's Boulder Dash or Beyond Boulder Dash as it might be called. Beyond Boulder Dash has this really cool little system where you may be given Certain there are five different categories, and the idea is is that the person giving the clue out will have the correct answer. 
but then all the other players get to guess what they think the answer is, but also at the same time they're trying to put in an answer that is blatantly wrong, but they're trying to fool other players into choosing their own guess because it gets more points. And the categories you might have is a person, why is this person famous? Initials, what do these initials stand for? A word, what does this word mean? The funniest one is when you get the laws, where it usually says, like, in Massachusetts, it is illegal for an old lady to do what? And the answers you get are so ludicrous out of the box, but the answers that you get from other players is just hilarious. Especially when you've got multiple players and all these different answers are in there, and you just find that some are cruder than others, but you never know with some of the answers that come out of this game. They're, sometimes the weirdest answer is the best one. So it plays out really nicely with a usually about five six players is the recommended amount but it's a cool little party game just to unwind on a night say like you've just had a nice dinner and you want something to basically cause a lot of laughter but not be much of a brain burner or anything like that so boulder dash number 62 number 61 is a simple game for the list Poker. Traditional poker, or to be more specific, Texas Hold'em poker, but even just poker in general. Now, some people might think, well, hang on, you can't put, this is just a deck of cards, you can't just put a deck of cards on the list. Well, poker is a game that's been around for a good couple hundred years at least. I think the Texas Hold'em one was only invented in the early 1900s, but poker in general has been around for a couple hundred years, and I enjoy it. I used to play a lot of Texas Hold'em poker a couple of years back with a group of people down the pub. I went to a few tournaments every now and again. Um, On occasion, I'd go down the casino and join in the tournament. Okay, yes, I didn't win very much, so it was mostly like a bit of a money sink. But I never let it get out of hand. I just went the occasional time, and I figured that if I'd spent a good three to four hours in a night playing Texas Hold'em Poker, even if I lost, I still enjoyed myself, and the game is essentially a bluffing game, and I do like a lot of bluffing games, so it kind of just meets my criteria. I would happily play a game of Texas Hold'em Poker if it was just a friendly money's one round the pub again. It's certainly, I don't play it as often as I used to, mainly because I don't want to play for money all the time. But it's a really cool little game. It's been around for a couple hundred years. I'm happy to put it on the list, and it's my list, so there. Number 61, Poker. Number 60 is a best played as a two-player. Yes, you can play this as a four-player with enough cards, but I don't recommend that. Play this as a two-player dueling card game. It's designed by D. Brad Tolton and published by Level 99 Games. Ranked 587 on Board Game Geek. This is Pixel Tactics. Pixel Tactics is a simple little card game. Each box, and there are several of these, so you can get a ton of cards for this now, basically just gives you 25 characters. And you have a 3x3 grid, which will be your vanguard, so the front free, the middle support, which is the middle free, and then the rear guard, which is the back free. And the idea is, is that, much like in a game of chess, you're trying to kill your opponent's leader. Now, this plays a lot differently from chess, which is why I'm not putting this in the same category as Hive. But... With this game, the cool thing is what the characters do. Each one has a special ability, depending on what it's used for. Now, to put that in more clarity, you have 25 characters. Each character 
has five different ways it can be used. If it is your hero, it has a special ability. If it's in your vanguard, it has a slightly different ability. In your support, it has another ability. In your rearguard, it has another ability. Or you can just play it out of your hand like a typical magic instant card, and it has another ability. So that's 25 times 5 different abilities that exist. The combinations in this game are ridiculous. Ridiculi. It's just insanity. Every game will play out completely differently, even just depending on what hero you have, let alone what cards you bring out in what particular rows. Some games you'll be focusing on being aggressive, some defensive, some cool healing, some being like rock solid, some doing long range attacks that can bypass other characters. It's a really cool little game and dirt cheap. If you want something a little bit different and you don't mind that kind of pixelated artwork, I recommend giving this one a look. Just buy one of the decks, play it with a friend. I think each box can happily deal with two players, so that's all you need, just one box. You don't have to go mad and get them all. But if you're like my mate, you already have. Pixel Tactics, really fun dueling game that will really test your tactical thinking to the limits. Number 60. Number 59 is a Stefan Feld game. <gasps> Stefan Feld? Luke? But Stefan Feld doesn't care about theme. Don't you like thematic games? Well, yeah, I do like thematic games, but I do like some Euro games that don't have theme, and as you've already seen, I do like some abstract games as well. And Stefan Feld, granted, he's not my favourite designer because of the way that theme kind of takes a back seat, but there are one or two of his games that really have jumped out and gone, oh, hello, this is actually a really cool game. And this is one of my favourites, Amerigo. Amerigo, ranked 238 in Board Game Geek, is a game where you are sailing little ships around this like, archipelago of islands. I believe that's the term. And you are settling little buildings on those islands and collecting little trade goods. Now, with those trade goods, those will get you points, but then also... Uh, moving up several different tracks for things like technologies or special abilities will get you points and of course surviving pirate attacks when they happen will also stop you losing points it's essentially a point salad at the end of the day you can get points for a lot of things what makes this really cool though and the re one of the main reasons I like it A. it looks pretty gorgeous it comes in a massive box there's a lot of kit in there but it uses a cube tower for deciding what actions you can take and that it just that blows my mind when I use it. The idea is is that you have got several different actions and you've got all these different coloured cubes to represent the actions. You will drop the cubes in the tower and so many will come out. Now, the amount of cubes that are there total will dictate the amount of actions you're allowed. But the colours that come out dictate what actions you're allowed to take. So you might want to move your ship across the sea quite fast. Well, you drop the cubes in and five green cubes come out and one blue cube comes out. Because there are six cubes, it means that because the blue is moving your ship, you could do six different actions for movement on your ship. But you could also take six actions for building various uh, settlements on the lands and the islands and there's only a limited space and it gets you points with the green cubes and there's other ones like black cubes for cannons red cubes for acquiring the different uh, settlement pieces that kind of thing but it forces you to have a really cool like hard choices to make every turn because you might be hoping that you'll get a particular cube color as an action but if it doesn't pop out the tower you can't do it 
and you might think well later on I need to build some stuff because I'm falling behind here and the green cube just happens to pop out of the tower a lot sooner than they expected it's like oh I could do it now but then I wanted to move my ship you know should I do that really cool I love the way the cube tower works with this game it makes me want to try something like Wolfenstein uh, I think El Grande had this as well you know games like that that use cube towers to similar effects they're high on my try list for that reason but this is my favorite one to date for now and that's Steffenfeld's Amerigo number 59. Number 58 is a short little card game by Paul Peterson, designed, uh, published sorry, by AEG Games. And the amount of expansions I have for this means that the combinations are just getting a little bit insane at the moment. But this is essentially a geek's wet dream, where you can take various different factions like aliens and dinosaurs and ninjas, that kind of thing, and pop them together into one deck, so you might have dinosaur ninjas, or you might have alien killer plants, or you might have vampire werewolves, how that works I have no idea, but it does in this game, yes I'm talking about Smash Up. Smash Up's a nice little quick game, well quick as long as you don't play with four players, where you are beating the living schnard out of each other in various base locations in order to score points. It's quick, it's frantic, and there's a lot to take that. But what makes this game for me is the stupid amount of combinations that you can do, and different factions work better with different decks, and it's a smorgasbord of different combinations that you can get. And it's fun to try new stuff out. I mean, some people will munchkin, yeah, I like my zombie robots, you know, which are an insanely good combination. But it's fun just to have other ones there, and the different races that are coming out I mean I must admit I'm not really in I don't really care about smash up munchkin but ones that have come out today like I like the vampires werewolves and like Frankenstein monsters that are around uh, a recent one I got which was the um pretty pretty smash up which has you have like cute kittens and unicorn ponies and stuff like that it's, it gets ridiculous after a while but smash up's a really cool fun little game I've got a massive geeky box set with all these different races in it it's a great one to play every now and again as a semi filler or just something to unwind with it's certainly not a heavy game by any means it's not quite a gateway game because there's a lot of these abilities you're trying to learn so it's a little bit above most non-gamer stations I think but it's fairly light for typical gamers smash up number 58 Number 57 is another game by Ignacy Trevacek. I wonder how often he appears on this list. I'll have to look into that. But this was a very recent game by him that has, you know, done very well for itself. It's a cool little Euro game where you are building up it's a light civilization game you build up your little civilization various buildings and special buildings that are unique to you and some common buildings that come out of a deck that everybody can choose from but your your race that you pick has a slightly asymmetrical feel to it in what they start with and what abilities they have and i'm talking of course by imperial settlers Imperial Settlers came out in 2014, and it's a cool little card game. Nice, not too long, you know, fairly easy to pick up, nice and quick. You know, about 45 to 90 minutes it says the playing time is. I think that's pretty accurate. But it works with two players, it works with three or four players, it scales quite well. And it, there's an interesting amount of strategy in the game, despite the fact that it's reasonably light. But it's just a very simple one to pick up and play, in a sense. 
you know, you may not know all the buildings that are in your particular deck, but it doesn't take long for you to realize that the Egyptians love gold, for example, and the Romans, for example, like conquering other places. You can attack other people's buildings and blow them up in order to get various resources for yourself. It's a nice little clever civilization game, and with the expansions that are coming out for it, you're going to get more races, like the Atlanteans has come out now at Gen Con for it, you know, a new faction, and you can get more cards, so you can almost deck build your factions. I'm not particularly interested in deck building, but I just lump all the cards in and say, here you go, now you've got lots more choices. Imperial Settlers 57. Number 56 is a game that I raved about a lot on Euro Top 10s and Best of 2013 Top 10, I think it was. Yes, the Best of 2013 Top 10. And for a while, this game was a a high note in my book for Euro games. It's gone down a bit since then with more Euro games coming out, but I still think highly of this one, and that is Spirium. Spirium's a clever little Euro game where it's work placement, but the grid that you place them on is made up of cards that change every round, and there's different combinations. But rather than place your workers on the cards, you place them in between them. And then when you take the worker off, you can either get money based on how many other workers, including your own, that surround the card that you just took it off, or you can use the action on the card. And this might be a building you can buy, this might be a person you can use, this might be a contract for more points, that kind of thing. And again, the card that you use goes up in price because of the amount of workers that surround it. So it's a a market that plays a very clever interpretation of a typical market, you know, supply and demand. And it's a really neat little system. It's not very difficult to learn, but there's plenty of options and paths to victory because you might go for lots of people, you might go for all the uh, mining so you can get all the resources in the world, you might just go for flat-out gold-making. There's lots of different ways to play the game. It really could probably do with an expansion, I think, to get more cards in there, but even on its own, it's a cheap, cheerful, cool little Euro game that ticks a lot of the boxes for a great value Euro game, and that's Spirium number 56. Okay, five more and we can wrap up this first part of the list. And number 55 is the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game. Now, it doesn't really matter which set you use, whether it's Rise of the Rune Lords or Skull and Shackles, which is the one that I've spent a lot more time with, or the newest one, Wrath of the Righteous, I think it's called. They're all pretty good. Now, Pathfinder, for me, ticks it tickles that little sort of Dungeons and Dragons itch that I do have. I don't do the roleplay anymore, but this is effectively like a sort of miniaturized roleplay done in a card game. But this is one of my go-to solo games at the moment. Yes, it's good playing in the group, but it's also cool just to control several different characters and go through the scenarios, of which there are lots of different scenarios. Granted, you have to work a little bit hard with your brain in order to inject the theme into the game at times, but the scenarios all play out reasonably fairly different. I mean, there's ones where you've... They all, 
the objective's still the same. You know, you've got to find the main baddie and then corner him and then dispose of them. But the way that you get there and the hindrances that you come across do vary across all the different scenarios. And as you buy more packs, you get more cards to put in your own decks. And it's a progressive game. So your character levels up over time and gets better and better and gets different cards in his deck. And if you play different combinations of characters, you get different experiences. It's a cool game, bit of a money sink, so you better make certain that you like it before you start investing too much into it. But I really enjoy it. It's a cool solo game, not too difficult to bring out, and I've got a really cool playmat for it as well, which makes it even better. Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, whichever set you like, my number 55. Number 54 is another party game, and it might have been the first party game I played since I got back into gaming. There were other party games like Boulder Dash and things like that that I certainly played a long time ago and they've gone throughout the years, but this is the most this was the first one out of the recent stash of party games that so I got to play and realized, whoa, party games have come a long way now. 54 is Dixit. Dixit's a really cool party game where you have these cards with all sorts of cool looking and sometimes creepy storyboard artist work and you will place a card down and you will say a clue about it. It could be you could be humming a song, you could sing a you could read a poem, you could just give a catchphrase, you could just give a random sentence, whatever you like. The idea is is that you want another player to guess it, but you don't want everybody to guess it and you don't want everybody to get it wrong either. Everybody else will then pick a card from their hand that they think best matches the clue that you've just given. They'll all get flipped up, and then the other players vote on which ones that they think it is. If somebody votes for their particular card to get points, if they get it right, you and that player get points. But if everybody gets it right, or if nobody gets it right, they all get points and you don't. So you can't be too cryptic with your clues, and you can't be blatantly obvious either. Believe me, it is a lot harder than it sounds to think of a decent clue with some of these cards. But it's a cool party game, very popular amongst many people, and the new Mysterium game that's coming out, or has already come out I guess since Gen Con, basically takes that mechanic of looking at these pictures and trying to think what is that other person trying to say to me, and puts it into a co-op game. I cannot wait to get a copy of it, I've already played the Polish version once or twice and I demoed the Mysterium game at the UK Games Expo. I can't wait for it because I think this will be a solid entry into my collection. However, that's for next year's Top 75. Will it make it? Who knows? But for now, 54 dicks it. Number 53 is the longest running game on this list. And when I say longest running, I mean longest running in terms of hours it takes to play the game. This is a giant 4X space epic game, which isn't in my collection because I already know someone who has it with all the expansions, so why should I need it? But that's Twilight Imperium 3. This is about as insane a game as you can get for what for something that you want to spend six hours plus playing on a Sunday when you've got nothing else to do and you've got five or six of you to play. There's so much in this game, it is insane. You can have a different alien race, you can have unique technologies, you can have flagships which are unique to you, you've got the expanding map, you've got the race for the galaxy style action selection where you pick from several different actions and you get the 
it was sort of a bit like the San Juan Puerto Rico thing as well, where you choose the action, everyone else gets to do a lesser version of it, but you get the better version of it, and it's just a really cool game to play. Yes, it's expensive. Yes, it takes lots of time to learn and play, but once you've got a group that can play this game without too much teaching and too much, you know, not that much reminding of the rules, it makes for a brilliant, epic event game. However, yes, it is a difficult one to learn, and if you get taken out fairly early, you might be there for a little while, sort of twiddling your thumbs and thinking, I've got no chance of winning. But it's still a good fun game for when you can get out to the table, Twilight Imperium 3. Number 52, and we've only got two left now for this segment, and this is the first Dungeon Crawl game on the list. Will it be the last Dungeon Crawl game? Well, we shall see. But this is Cool Mini or Not's interpretation for a Dungeon Crawl, and that's Arcadia Quest. I don't own this game because a friend of mine already owns it, and he's shown it to me. We've played a few games of it, like sort of half a campaign and a few skirmishes, that kind of thing. And it's really good fun. I mean, it's cool mini or not, so the miniatures already look astounding. I mean, there are some really nice stuff in here. But it's a relatively simple dungeon crawl. There's not so many rules to learn. The scenarios are varied, they're decent. But what's cool about this is that there's a PvP element. You will control three different heroes, which is already a plus point, the fact that you've got multiple different guys. As you're trying to do the objective, you can also take out each other. And taking out each other is what is required to win the game. I mean, you not only have to complete the objectives, but you've also got to take out one person, at least from other opposing teams. So you can't just simply ignore each other. You have to be prepared that someone's going to try and kill you at the best opportunity, and you've got to do the same to them. So it's a really cool dungeon crawl, simple to pick up. I'd say simpler to pick up than uh, Descent 2.0 and Imperial Assault for a start. But if you don't mind the cartoony sort of anime style artwork, which to be honest, I think is quite cool, but you have to be used to that sort of anime chibi style artwork in order to enjoy it. But it's really cool. There's expansions for it. There's all sorts of different heroes. I do not think you have to go mad and try and find a Kickstarter version with all the extra heroes because let's face it, there is a ton of stuff in that base set box to last you a long time. And then once you're bored with that, you could always grab Beyond the Grave, which is easily available anyway. I wouldn't waste your money on all the Kickstarter extras. Just try and grab a base set box for this and this will keep you going for dungeon calls for a long time. Arcadia Quest 52. And the final one for this part of the top 75, number 51. This is another Euro game and we're scratching the Dungeons and Dragons theme again and that's Lords of Waterdeep. Now, Lords of Waterdeep, I will stress, does need the expansion to hit this high on the list. The Scoundrels of Skullport. The base set is still fine, but it wouldn't make my top 75. With the expansion, though, this is a much better game. In Lords of Waterdeep, you are... Your resources that you're collecting are effectively the workers. They're, they're the people that you need to go on these various quests, like fighters and rogues and wizards and clerics. Now, you will then try and complete these quests, which give you special rewards, and then you'll try and complete as many of those as you can throughout the game by putting workers out is worker placement you can build buildings that give you more spaces to put your workers on which i really like in games where the uh, spaces available expand in different combinations of ways 
but the expansion is what really buffs this up because not only does it give you more cards for the intrigues and the quests and the buildings but it also introduces the corruption mechanic where certain quests in certain spaces because you get a couple of extra boards as well will give you really good rewards but they also give you corruption and there is a track where you take the tokens off and depending on how many tokens have been taken each token is worth negative points at the end of the game and it can be anything from minus one to minus nine each depending on how many players decide to get corrupted there are ways to mitigate it so you can get rid of corruption and things like that but in general that expansion really buffs this game up to a good level it's very simple to learn it's not difficult at all i would almost i would put this in a gateway euro camp because the spaces are pretty self-explanatory the cards aren't particularly complicated the intrigue ones that you play almost as like action cards the buildings aren't complicated the iconography is not difficult and if you've got any knowledge of Dungeons and Dragons at all, you can instantly sort of get into the theme. Although it is Lords of Waterdeep, so the theme isn't quite as strong as it could be with Dungeons and Dragons. And that's a complaint some people have with the game. But if you look deep enough, the quests and that do make sense. You know, if you if you get a quest that says uh, free the fighters from prison or something, then naturally your reward is that you get a bunch of fighters. So they do link if you just look hard. But yes, it's not exactly dripping with theme as other Dungeons and Dragons games could be. But this is a cool gateway Euro. Very good. Scales well, even up to five players, even though I prefer to play it with less. That's Lords of Waterdeep, my number 51. Ooh, that's just the first 25 and I can already feel my voice is going. Thank God I'm not going to record all three of these at once. But that's it for now. That is my 75 through 51 of my top 75 games of all time. All of these games are good fun to play, but believe me, it's only going to get better from this point on. There are some classic games coming in the top 50, especially the top 75, and I cannot wait to beam on about my top 10. My top 10 is a really cool list this year and a very different one in many respects to what was on it last year so we're gonna see you're gonna see some interesting changes on that but for now i'm gonna leave you guys this is part one of the anniversary broken meeple special thank you for listening and i'll catch you in part two later this month i appreciate you taking the time to listen to the broken meeple thank you for your continued support if you wish to check out more of my work, you can find my website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple, and also check out my Facebook page. The music used in this podcast has been kindly provided by CMA Music. I'm Luke Hector, you take care, and enjoy the hobby.